Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Last and Best Word. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 16th, 2010. In church a few years ago, our pastor told about a woman in Atlanta who enrolled in a psychology program at a local university. One class assignment required her to identify the sort of person that she most feared, and then to find and meet just such a person. This Christian woman admitted that she most feared gay people, and so, to her credit, she followed the assignment and befriended some gays. The fears of her classmates were even more revealing. A full 40% of the students in her class said that the people they most feared were Christians. Did these students rightly fear Christians? Are Christians scary people? The purpose of the class exercise was to show students how easily we stereotype people without even knowing them, and how we can dispel those unjustified fears by meeting people whom we find strange. So we can say that Christians aren't quite as bad as the media sometimes suggests. There's some truth in that, but to hide behind that fig leaf lets us off the hook too easily. In his film, Lord, Save Us From Your Followers, director Dan Merchant wonders why a gospel of love so bitterly divides people. He wears a jumpsuit plastered with all sorts of religious cliches and then interviews people on the street about his nagging question. I didn't think this was a great movie, but it sure asks a great question. In the final part of the film, Merchant sets up what he calls a confession booth at a Portland Gay Pride Festival. Only this time, he, the Christian, was the one confessing the sins of the believers to the people who stopped by his booth. I also keep mulling over the observation of the New Testament scholar Marcus Borg of Oregon State University. In a footnote to his book, The Heart of Christianity, he says that when he asks his unchurched university students to write a short essay about their impressions of Christianity, they consistently use five adjectives. They think Christians are literalistic, anti-intellectual, self-righteous, judgmental, and bigoted. Another one of my pastors suggested that Christians have what she calls a branding problem. Kim observed how companies go to great lengths to brand themselves in ways that communicate not just a catchy slogan or a superficial tagline, but their core identity, what they most want the public to think of when they hear their name. Good branding is powerful. Just think of all the corporate jingles that you can't get out of your head even if you try. Or think of Tiger Woods. Pastor Kim then proposed a thought experiment. 
She said, what do you think the average person on the street, in the grocery store, at the gas station would come up with if we went around and asked them to sum up in just a few words what the Christian church was all about? In many cases, our branding tagline would be something like this. We're right, you're wrong. Let us correct your behavior. Give us your money for something irrelevant to your life. Withdraw from normalcy and join our weird little subculture. Welcome to worship and let us tell you how to vote. Whether we like it or not, we have been branded in these ways by a culture that for the most part sees the church primarily outside of the mainstream of current life. The Bible is a mini-library of 66 books, written mainly in Hebrew and Greek by about 40 authors across more than a thousand years. It's long, too. My Bible is almost 1,700 pages long. It has many plot twists and is rooted in ancient cultural settings that are foreign to us today. But can we brand the Bible's story? What would be its singular tagline? Can we reduce its myriad complexities to an essential substance that clarifies and enlightens rather than reduces and oversimplifies? Yes, we can. The lectionary for this week does exactly that. The very last sentence of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 21, reads, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's the, brand, the Bible's branding, and it ought to be ours too. Not a narrow political ideology, whether left nor right. Not a specious theory rooted in junk science. Not judgmentalism of others that's eager to exclude people unlike ourselves. We could even reduce our branding from one sentence to one word, grace. Some variants in the original Greek New Testament propose a different reading for Revelation 22:21 that narrows the appeal for God's grace to quote God's people, the NIV or the saints, the ASV, or the new RSV. But as Pastor Rob Bell has observed, the gospel is good news, especially to those who don't believe it. So, I like the reading of the New American Standard Bible, which retains the expansive nature of God's grace by translating the Greek in a strictly literal, if awkward way. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Even Psalm 97 from the lectionary this week has as its purview all the earth, the world, all the peoples, which is rather remarkable when you think about it for an ancient liturgical text written for, quote, the villages of Judah, Psalm 97, verse 8. God's lavish love, without conditions, without limits, for all people, that's our branding. The Apostle Paul also pushes the parameters of divine grace, not only beyond the saints, 
but even beyond humanity. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, he says that God was in Christ reconciling the entire cosmos to himself. The God whom Jesus revealed isn't mean or scary. And if we reflect his image, people need not fear his followers. Rather, said Jesus, he's the sort of God who throws a party for a kid who wasted the family fortune, who refuses to condemn a woman caught in the act of adultery, who breaks taboos of ethnicity and gender to encourage a woman who had been married five times, who welcomes a criminal into his kingdom as the man gasps his last breaths while being executed, and who embraces his closest disciples even though they abandon him and denied even knowing him. In the wonderful and eminently readable book, The Lives of the Desert Fathers, written toward the end of the fourth century, the the anonymous author begins his preface with how most people viewed the monks. He characterizes those early desert dwellers as defenders and guardians of all humanity. And here I quote, The people in Egypt depend on the prayers of these monks, as if on God himself. It's clear to all who dwell there that through them the world is kept in being, and that through them too human life is preserved and honored by God. And so the last page of the Bible welcomes everyone with these words. Let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And now for further reflection. In your experience, do people fear Christians? And if so, why? Do you think their fears are justified? Number two, can you think of Christians who break this stereotype and who are graceful, gracious, and welcoming to all people? Consider the words of Donald McCullough. Grace tells us that we are accepted just as we are. We may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We may have more failures than achievements, but we're nonetheless accepted by God, held in his hands. Such is his promise to us in Jesus Christ. It's a promise, says McCullough, we can trust. For books this week, I review Douglas Hicks. The title, Money Enough. Everyday Practices for Living Faithfully in the Global Economy. San Francisco, Josie Bass, 2010, 208 pages. Douglas Hicks is well positioned, both by practice and profession, to consider the many complexities of a Christian's economic life. 
He earned his Ph.D. at Harvard studying the interface of economics, religion, and ethics under the tutelage of the Nobel economist Amartya Sen and the theologian Ron Thiemann. He's been a Presbyterian pastor and he's now a professor at the University of Richmond. I think the book is slightly mistitled inasmuch as one of its strengths is how Hicks shows that one's economic life is about far more than just money. After a short preface, Hicks devotes one chapter each to nine everyday economic practices. A consideration of what he calls valuing reveals that life cannot be reduced to money. Only a theocentric view is anything less than idolatrous. In what he calls discerning desires, we must take into account how marketers and advertisers manipulate our desires and how a desire is far different than a need. Consideration of providing leads to a discussion of divine providence, which in turn leads to asking how we can speak about providence in a world where, where a billion people scrape by on a dollar a day. His treatment of labor requires thinking about work as both a divine call and a human curse. Other chapters examine recreating, expanding the community, doing justice, and sharing. Hicks is clearly comfortable quoting economists Amartya Sen and Adam Smith, as well as theologians John Calvin and Reinhold Niebuhr. In one chapter, he's quoting the rock star Bono. In another chapter, he's quoting Costco. He knows the opportunities and limitations of the free market, as well as the farmer's market. In chapter after chapter, he freely shares not only his intellectual knowledge, but his personal experiences from both his life in Richmond and in service all around the world. I particularly appreciated that Hicks never oversimplifies complex problems. He knows his Bible well, and he also knows the challenges of applying an ancient text in our modern world. There are many forces at life in our economic world, both personal and structural, and Hicks acknowledges them all. Government regulations, free markets, microcredit, environmental concerns, technology, politics, and, thanks to bo this book, let us hope, the life and witness of the Christian gospel. The title of the book, Money Enough, Everyday Practices for Living Faithfully in the Global Economy. The author, Douglas Hicks. For film this week, I travel to Ecuador in a movie called Crude, C-R-U-D-E, from the year 2009. This David versus Goliath documentary film follows the fortunes of a class action lawsuit brought by 30,000 indigenous Ecuadorians in 1993 against the oil giant Chevron. 
For 26 years, Chevron dumped more than a billion gallons of toxic waste into the Amazon rainforests, polluting drinking water and the environment, and sickening numerous indigenous villages with cancer. The Kofan people, for example, formerly numbered 15,000 people, but have been reduced now to just 300. Chevron blames Petro-Ecuador, which took over after they left in 1992. It claims they cleaned up after themselves, and according to their chief environmental scientist who was interviewed in this film, denies the charges of health concerns. After 14 years of litigation, a court-appointed expert delivered a 4,000-page report that recommended Chevron pay $27 billion in damages. The court is not required to follow the recommendation, and experts predict the case will drag on for 10 more years. Filmmaker Joe Berlinger lets each side state their case, and he follows the unusual proceedings which took place outside amidst the contaminated waste sites and spoiled marshes of the Amazon jungle, with the litigants in safari hats and bright yellow rain suits. We had a clean jungle. It was paradise, said one of the indigenous people, before the arrival of the company and their contamination. The title of the film, Crude, a film from Ecuador. And finally for poetry, we've posted the rather winsome excerpt from early Welsh precepts. Excerpt from early Welsh precepts. The three who are first in point of precedence according to politeness, the most infirm, the poorest, and he who does not know the language. Three things which, according to politeness, should be prepared for guests, a kind and affectionate reception, a ready and handsome provision, and a friendly conversation. Three things which, according to politeness, should not be asked of a guest where he came from, his worldly condition, and the place of his destination. And three things which are indecorous over meat, gossiping, coquetting, and praising or blaming the meat, since it should be received as God sent it. Early Welsh Precepts Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 16th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.